Welcome, nerds, from around the world. Grab yourself a beverage, get comfy, and prepare to get your nerd on as we dive into the world of computing, past, present, future, all of the above. This is Lunduke's Big Tech Show for Sunday, March 12th, 2023, which is pretty much all the way into the future. That amazing little ditty you were just subjected to that was rammed into your cranium is the Commodore theme song or thereabouts. It came out in the 80s. It was part of the Commodore commercials about the Commodore 64 and I absolutely love it. I (laughs) I stumbled across it again recently. I hadn't heard it in quite a while and it just it just absolutely stuck with me. Because not only is it entirely whimsical, it's just a it's just a goofy, so very 1980s ad jingle, but the lyrics to it, if you had them in a in a piece of ad copy nowadays for technology, would not be so much a positive as a threat. Uh, give you an example here. Are you keeping up with the Commodore? Because the Commodore is keeping up with you. That's the repeated refrain from that glorious, glorious ad campaign of the 80s. And in the 80s, it made sense. Because you want your computer to be able to keep up with what you're doing. I mean, heck, uh, modem speeds back then were often slower than what you could actually type or what you could actually read. If you had a 300 baud modem, good luck keeping <laughs> with your modem keeping up with your ability to read the text that's slowly crawling across your screen. But nowadays... Nowadays, in 2023, in the future, could you imagine if Google had an an almost identical ad campaign? Are you keeping up with your Android phone? Because your Android phone is keeping up with you. I mean, it it, it comes across as a threat, right? It basically is, is not just implying, it's straight up saying that your digital electronics are stalking you, spying on you, and are probably going to jump at you and stab you while you're in the shower. Or, or, or turn into some sort of weird snow creature outside and, and murder you in your sleep. It, it's not going to go well, is what I'm saying. And I, that made me start to think and realize how much whimsy we've lost in the computing market over the over the last few decades even up until the end of the 90s and the early 2000s we had some pretty goofy jovial whimsical ad campaigns from the likes of apple and microsoft and everybody but nowadays almost every ad campaign is essentially the same ad campaign and it's not at all goofy it's not at all fun it's not at all outlandish there's no there's no ridiculous jingles and theme songs anymore it's all just people with haircuts that i don't quite understand and outfits that i've 
never thought about purchasing dancing on amid colorful backgrounds to some sort of music format that I've never heard of before. Maybe what I'm suggesting is that I'm getting too old. <laughs> Maybe that's it. Maybe the ad cads of today are whimsical. I'm just simply too old to understand how whimsical they are. Anyway, I wanted to share that Commodore theme song with you. I wish they'd bring back more things like that. Let's talk about the news. We got news this week. And no, I am not going to dive in to the banking stuff. Because that's going to be all over the regular and the mainstream news all week long. And it's a bummer. Uh, there's, there's enough bummer stuff in the world going on. There, but there's also some really fun things. So let's just say a few quick words about the Silicon Valley bank closure that really actually relates to the tech world. And then let's just, let's just dump that in the trash can and move on to the fun stuff. Okay, first... And this is a weird, weird coincidence. You remember the FTX scandal? The FTX crypto exchange that, that went kaput and took a whole lot of money with it? Well, the law firm that represents FTX's bankruptcy proceedings was hired by Silicon Valley Bank right before the government shut the bank down. Weird, right? That's just a weird little coinky dink. And, and it wouldn't be that, that overly interesting because, you know, sure, obviously that must be a, uh, what was the, the law firm called? Sullivan and Cromwell. Sure. Okay. So Sullivan and Cromwell, maybe they've got a lot of experience dealing with large failing financial institutions. So maybe it made sense. But Silicon Valley Bank also has huge ties to the tech industry and to crypto in particular. A number of stable coins deposit their backing currency in Silicon Valley Bank. And a stable coin is basically a cryptocurrency like Bitcoin or something else that is, in theory, backed by actual dollars, right? In this case, U.S. dollars, real fiat-style tangible currency that is sitting in a bank somewhere. So in theory, you have a much, a much easier way of keeping it stable, of keeping the price of the whole gosh darn currency stable. Well, those stable coins just lost all or close to all of the money that was backing them. All in one fail swoop. Now, in theory, they may be able to get it back. Who knows what's going to be happening with that. But it's interesting how tightly integrated so many crypto exchanges and cryptocurrencies are with Silicon Valley Bank, and which then goes and taps the law firm that is handling the bankruptcy for FTX at the same time. That, to me, is, is fascinating and interesting. It will be interesting to see over the coming days and weeks, how the startup and venture capital world of Silicon Valley, Seattle, Los Angeles, etc. handles Silicon Valley Bank going under. Because so many startups used Silicon Valley Bank. I don't know if people realize how absolutely pervasive Silicon Valley Bank is throughout the tech industry. Within that region, something like 90% of all of those companies use Silicon Valley Bank. If you if you go through 
the tech firms that utilize it. It's a veritable who's who of tech companies. It's all over the map. And multiple venture capitals, venture capitalist firms also use Silicon Valley Bank and multiple payroll companies, companies that process those weekly and bi-monthly contractor paychecks also go through Silicon Valley Bank. So there's going to be a lot of hiccups this week. Hopefully it won't be too dreadful, but there's going to be a lot of hiccups and we're just rooting for everybody and we're hoping for the best here. Now let's move on to some fun stuff because gosh darn it, we deserve fun in our lives. And this first news story is possibly one of the funnest things I have ever seen in my life. A man has built a Lego minifig single board computer. No, no kidding. No joke. I, I'm going to put a link to this. Uh, I found this over on the Adafruit uh, website, which uh, is a great company that, that produces all sorts of cool kits for, for doing programming projects and little DIY electronic projects. A lot of cool stuff over there. I'm going to link to them in the, in the show notes. But a man built a single board computer in the exact shape of a standard Lego minifig. Like the circuit board is cut to minifig dimensions. Now it's not a super powerful single board computer. You're not going to run the ARM edition of Windows or even even any sort of full-blown Linux distribution. What it runs is is a little embedded OS and something called Circuit Python. So you can code in it and develop a little bit of software in Python and a couple other things as well inside of this little single board computer. And it is in the shape of a minifig. And on the front of it, it's got a three by three grid of little LED lights. So nine little LED lights that you can utilize to display status or show little shapes or something, but you get a minifig shaped computer. <laughs> and to me, that is just beautiful. That's the sort of whimsy I like to see in my computer industry. <laughs> now, this is just a, a small project, um, but I, I truly hope that some company, Adafruit or someone else, starts mass producing these. I don't have a need. Like, there was no, I didn't wake up yesterday morning and think, man, I could sure finish that cool random electronics project I had if only I had a small computer the shape of a Lego minifig. <laughs> but uh, darn it, there's no minifig computer, so I just can't do it. Like, I didn't have that thought. But now that I realize that it's possible, well, now I want it. <laughs> You, you got to go check out the picture. I'll put the, I'll put the link in. It's fantastic. A again, not super powerful. You're not going to run a full blown desktop environment. You're not going to be running a web browser on it or anything like that. It's nowhere near that powerful, but it's in the shape of a minifig, which makes it cool. And more things like that need to happen. In other completely unexpected but totally awesome news. Do you remember the Commodore Amiga? <laughs> yeah, you do. Well, <coughs> even though, excuse me, even though the Amiga has been a, all but quote-unquote dead for about 3,000 years, Amiga OS 3.2.2 has just been released. Yes, an official brand new update to Amiga OS 
has just been released by a company out of out of Europe called Hyperion Entertainment. Now this this gets a little bit weird. Uh, I, I, well, let me let me go into this very very briefly here. Um, so uh, where where am I at here? I, I don't even have this in front of me here. I don't have this in front of me. So I'm gonna just gonna go off of memory here. So in general, the history of the Commodore Amiga is wild and crazy. They filled with different companies, uh, including Gateway 2000. You remember those guys, the, the the cow designed computers with the little little cow shapes on the side of them. Well, they they purchased uh, Commodore at one point. They had the rights to that stuff, uh, and there was Amiga Incorporated, which came about after Commodore went kaput, which was a, a little startup company that tried to build this new Java based desktop that was like Amiga inspired, supposedly. Uh, actually. I actually almost went to work for that company a long time ago. And and there's there's been all sorts of back and forths and selling off of, of the different rights and copyrights and whatnot to the Commodore name and the Amiga name. It's been crazy. It's been absolutely wild. However, Hyperion Entertainment, over in Europe, across the pond, they've had the rights to continue development of Amiga OS for quite some time and develop it they have, including not just the newer Amiga OS, Amiga OS 4, but continued development of Amiga OS 3, which is just amazing to me that 30, 30 plus years later, after an operating system theoretically should have been dead and buried and gone, we are still seeing new releases of it. Amazing. I mean, the Amiga community just won't let their computers die. The, the industry says that, that thing is dead. Amiga and Commodore, you're dead. And Amiga users stand up. And they say, I don't think so, Jack. <laughs> Watch us as we develop new hardware. There's new Amiga accelerator boards and peripheral hardware that come out seemingly every couple of months. And admittedly, they're always small little batch runs of a, of a processor accelerator board or a RAM add-on card or this or that. But they keep making them. And they keep building them and they keep expanding their beloved computers and making them bigger and faster and continue to be more and more supported and have access to increasingly modern peripherals and storage. And now we see the Amiga OS 3.2.2 comes out. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. I, I absolutely am thrilled with this. Because I love it when we see companies going forward and, and even though, not companies, but operating systems with communities, and even though the companies are gone, long since gone, they want to continue using their hardware. They want to continue using their computer because even though the, an industry and maybe even common sense says this piece of hardware is obsolete and done, they say no. 
I'm going to keep it rocking because I can. I love that. I, I, I love that spirit. I love that style. Uh, it's just it's just absolutely amazing to me. Uh, hats off to Hyperion Entertainment. Kudos to the Amiga community out there for not letting your system die, for not caving in. And and shuttering your your computers and saying, okay, well, I guess I'm gonna I'm gonna never use my Amiga. No, you stand it up for the systems that you want to keep using, and I I absolutely love that. All right, we're coming up to a break. Stick around. We got more news. We got some computer history that is absolutely wild that I guarantee you, you probably don't know about. Coming up after the break. Here we go. That tunage right there comes from no, the band No More Kings and lead singer Pete Mitchell. Absolutely fine. He supplies the music for almost all of the songs you hear in today's show. I'm going to put some links here in the in the show notes for this show, so go and, go and grab it so you can check out his, his albums. They are phenomenal. Some of the nerdiest music you're going to find this side of the Mississippi. What side of the Mississippi is that, you ask? I, I don't know. Maybe every side of the Mississippi. It's really nerdy tunes. I, I highly recommend it. Highly, highly recommend it. All right, let's get back into the news because we got a, I got a couple more news items I want to cover today that, well, it, are less happy and less awesome than the uh, new Amiga OS and the Lego-shaped minifig-shaped <laughs> computer, um, but still important nonetheless. And the first... There is a company called Acronis, and it got hacked recently. <laughs> it it got hacked, and it it lost how much was this? Twelve gigabytes of data. Twelve gigabytes of data was was hacked, downloaded from their servers, and posted on the darkest of dark webs. Not just just posted on some random hacker forum somewhere, right? Now. We're told by Acronis that that breach only affected one of their clients because Acronis is a is a firm that handles cybersecurity stuff, right? So they're supposed to be one of the most secure companies that's out there. Uh, well, Acronis issued this this statement here. On March 9th, a post on breached forums mentioned Acronis. We immediately started the investigation. The investigation confirmed that no Acronis products were affected. Mm. However, based on the information we have, the credentials used by a specific customer to upload diagnostic data to Acronis support have been compromised. We are working with that customer and have suspended account access as we resolve the issue. We continue to investigate and will provide updates if any new information is discovered. Now, here's... Here's the thing. This this isn't quite what what doesn't really jive with the information that was actually posted on that little hacker forum. So, uh what was leaked? Hold, on, let me pull this up here. Uh the the thread was posted on breached forums. 
by the hacker named Colonelware, uh, someone who had previously uh, attacked the company Acer. And they claimed to have broken into a Cronus, and this is according to the register, stolen then leaked stolen then leaked certificate files, command logs, system configurations, system information logs, archives of the file system. I think that's a key one there. Archives of their file system, Python scripts <laughs> for the Acronis internal databases, hmm, and backup configuration plus lots of screenshots of the backup operation process. Now, some of that could jive in with it being, you know, just simply uploaded, diagno- uploaded diagnostic data from one of Acronis's, you know, personal uh, uh, clients. However, 12.2 gigs of files. That's an awful lot to just be diagnostic data. There's going to be some real customer data in there. We also don't know what that customer was. Did that customer in turn have a whole lot of clients? We really, really don't know. Uh, The reason I bring this up, because we need to pay attention when we see these sorts of hacks. If you think you have an email, uh, an, an email address that has been around for, let's say, more than a year, and you have a no- that email address is used on a number of accounts on Microsoft and Google and Steam and, and any other myriad of services, good odds that email address was included in some, at least some, hacked uh, website hacks that have happened. It's just happened. It, it, there's, there's no way around it. The number and frequency and size of these various data breaches is continuing to grow because the amount of data there is continuing to grow. And therefore, the, not, not only the value of the targets is growing because of that, making it more enticing for a hacker to get in that data. But increasingly, big companies are consolidating all of their data, all of their servers into big, giant compute clusters like Amazon Web Services, Microsoft Azure, Google Compute Cloud, and on and on and on. Thus making these systems a very, very enticing target. The more systems with the more points of access you cram into a single data center, into a single rack of servers, the more total possible vulnerability points are created. Thus, overall, no matter how diligent these companies like Acronis might be, they may use the most cutting edge security you've ever heard of, but increasingly, there is no, not going to be any way to fully secure those systems. So stay alert, stay aware. People say this regularly. Change your passwords regularly. And I, 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 can't, I can't agree with that enough. For example, I have a Steam account because I like to play my video games. Well, that Steam account got included in one of the hacks of Steam quite some time back. Now, my password has long since been changed, and no one's ever gained access to my Steam account that I'm aware of. 
And luckily, Steam is one of the systems where if you log in to Steam for the first time from a new IP address or from a new computer, it alerts you by sending you an email. So every now and then, I'll get emails, a flurry of them, where people in China, people in Russia, people in Ukraine, people in a couple other countries are trying to gain access to my Steam account. Um, like, oh, are you resetting your password? Oh, login attempt from Ukraine. Oh, and I'll get a flood of them all at once. Now, they never manage to successfully get into it because they don't actually have access to my email account. However, there is no reason that those email accounts, they themselves cannot be compromised. Even if you have a Gmail account, maybe Google has the best security on planet Earth, but they are a juicy, juicy target. And you better believe that people are trying all the time to gain access to the complete customer records of people who have Google accounts and Gmail accounts. And at some point... If they haven't already, they will succeed. So be on top of it. Have backup email addresses and be ready to change your password like greased lightning. It's just an important thing to do. Um, oh, oh, this is kind of a fascinating story. So the Netherlands, I'm changing topics entirely here. The Netherlands, people don't think about the Netherlands a whole heck of a lot when we talk about computing. Not not currently any anyway. However, they make a wide variety of m pieces of machinery that are absolutely critical to the development of multiple pieces of the components that go into smartphones, desktop computers, and embedded machines, including ultraviolet lithography machines. The kinds of machines that you need to do super, super detailed etchings onto circuit boards for developing new chips, new boards, and the like. Well, Netherlands just announced that they're going to be issuing new restrictions on how those machines built in the Netherlands, and in some cases built elsewhere, but by Netherlands-based companies or with Netherlands-based uh, 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 patents and, and uh, ideolog intellectual property. Ideological property. That's not a thing. Um, and so those new restrictions are going to make it really difficult for Chinese companies to get their hands on new ultraviolet lithography machines. Now, at first, that doesn't seem like a huge deal until you couple that with the fact that at the same time, the United States and a few other countries are currently putting into position a couple of restrictions on similar exports to Chinese companies that deal with the production of new computer chips. Aha. Uh -huh. And what you're seeing is uh, almost the whole world, in a way, deciding that there is a problem with computer chips predominantly being developed over in China. Uh, now, computer chips are being developed in a lot of countries, but a lot of the ones that we are really dependent on right now are coming from China. And so the Netherlands, the United States, and a few other countries as well are putting in new restrictions in place that will make it just a little bit harder for Chinese companies to compete 
with companies out of, say, the EU and the U.S. in the chip area. Couple that at the same time with the United States putting in a lot of money to try and boost up chip fabrication facilities at with companies like Intel and AMD inside the United States. And we're going to see a big chip war happening very, very soon. Whereas currently, as of right now, Many types of small processors are actually very difficult to come by, including ones that are often used in automobiles and set-top appliances that all come out of China. The tables could soon flip a little bit, where a lot of those that production is happening in the United States and various places around Europe and might possibly not be able to be built at a competitive price or a competitive feature set in China in the near future. It's, it's, it's fascinating how quickly a lot of this can turn. So keep an eye on that, because going forward, I'm not 100% certain what's going to happen, but I would expect China to try and retaliate in some way, shape, or form there. All right, all right, coming up. Coming up, we're going to get into the history, the history of computing, and specifically some of the history of the World Wide Web that many of you may not actually know about. So, stick around. Walked in the room, we thought he was surrounded. He fought, we hit the ground and got up again. He brought the boom and now we're getting slaughtered. Forget the bosses always to take him in. He's mystifying, fist flying, knocking out fools like he's not even trying. Case lying, justifying, then a second now when I'm the next one dying. We take him one at a time, why are we waiting in line? You took your turn and that's fine, I think I skipped mine. Don't wanna mess with no dragon, but I got some point of no return. Don't wanna tangle with no dragon, not as far as I'm concerned. On this date, well, this week, on this week, back in 1999, something little happened that everybody knows about and sees on a daily basis, whether they think about it or not. And on this week, back in 1992, something huge happened that almost nobody knows about. <laughs> let's, stay with, let's, get, let's get with the common one first. The fave icon. That's right. Back in March of 1999, Internet Explorer 5.0 was launched. Now, Internet Explorer, what are we talking about here, Lunduk? No one wants to use Internet Explorer. No one's used Internet Explorer 5 for one million years, and they didn't want to use it a million years before that. Why are we even talking about it? Well, it turns out IE 5.0 saw the introduction of the fave icon, that little itty bitty tiny icon that all that websites can have. You know, if you've got your tab open and you see a little tiny icon for the website inside the tab in your web browser, it's called the fave icon, which is short for favorite I icon. And it is a little itty bitty icon, 16 by 16 pixels or 32 by 32 pixels. And at that point in time, it was not a standard. 
Internet Explorer was the only web browser that implemented it, and the only, and all the other web browsers followed suit later on. But Internet Explorer paved the way for that little tiny fav icon. They just kind of came up with it. They're just the folks at Microsoft were like, "We need icons. We can't have websites without icons." So they put icons in your website. <laughs> Now, later that year, in December of 99, the W3C pulled Favicon into the official specification for HTML 4.01, which is which was kind of like the big daddy of HTML specs. HTML 401 was this specification that really laid the groundwork for the web 2.0 world and for the modern web as we know it. It, it. it was it was a big, big HTML spec. And the fact that it made it into the spec was in, primarily in part to the fact that it was so dog simple. The, spe- the, the idea behind the fave icon is literally that there's a standard icon using a standard file name on the server. And that's pretty much it. It's so, it was such a simple concept. It was easy to roll into the spec. And what's great about the fave icon is it's something that you can just not have. You don't need it. It doesn't really help your functionality at all. You can ignore it entirely if you're a web designer, or you can embrace it and put a little icon in there. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter one way or another. And so it got pulled into the HTML specification, and the rest is history. So if you like that little icon, thank Microsoft. <laughs> now, the big one. This, this is amazing to me. Because what we're about to talk about is something that has all but been lost in, in, the, in the shadows of computer history. But it was so amazing, so groundbreaking, that it deserves to be remembered. In March 9th of 1992, that's 30 years ago, 31 years ago, the Voila web browser was developed on Unix by a guy named uh, Pai Wan Wei. Now, why is this interesting? Well, not only is it an early web browser, because we're talking 1992 here, but the number of firsts that this web browser accomplished is nothing short of groundbreaking and amazing. It is, I kid you not, the very first web browser that supported in-page scripting. This is in 92, long before JavaScript. Before JavaScript was a twinkle in Brendan Eich's eye. It also included tables, the first web browser to include tables, forms, document insertion, think like frames, and style sheets. This is in 92. None of those things were in any web browser before these weren't even specifications these were not these were not part of the html spec the guy behind this paiwan way created all of this in the voila www the voila web browser and what's fascinating here is that this didn't even start as a web browser it started as an experiment in in the experimental experiment experimental computing facility at the University of California at Berkeley, at UC Berkeley. Pi Wan first started creating this beautiful, beautiful little piece of software in 1990. 
It wasn't a web browser at that point. Instead, he got inspired by HyperCard. Now, uh, many of you may not remember HyperCard, but it was a document authoring and software development visual toolkit for the Macintosh. It was very... Uh, H- it was it was not HTML, but it had uh, hypertext in it, so you could you could put buttons and text on things that would load different what they called stacks and different pages, and many amazing pieces of software were built with HyperCard, including Myst, one of the one of the the coolest games of all time. Myst was built in HyperCard, truly a revolutionary piece of software. Well, Paiwan saw it, and he said, quote, I got a HyperCard manual and looked at it and just basically took the concepts and implemented them. <laughs> he didn't have a Mac. He didn't have a Mac, so he went about building something that had a lot of the concepts, the ideas of HyperCard, and building it as a Unix application. Now, it was a it was visually interactive, object-oriented Language and application, V-I-O-L-A, voila, visually interactive, object-oriented language and application. Uh, now, here, here's a cool little little tidbit. This is from the book, How the Web Was Born, The Story of the World Wide Web, which is a great book. Quote, X-Windows was Unix-based system, so it had TCP IP built in and the Internet was a logical step. The question was how to transport his Voila pages across the Internet, because at that point he had built Voila, which was not a web browser. But Voila allowed you to build these rich experiences and scripting, and it was like modern web. It was like the modern scriptable web with JavaScript and forms and everything else. But this was back in the 90s, early, early 90s, right? But he didn't have the idea of how to make those documents transportable yet. Uh, I continue. He was on the verge of an independent invention of networked hypertext. This is completely independent of what was happening with World Wide Web. And then he says, and I quote, and that's when I read Tim's email, talking about Tim Berners-Lee, Tim's email about the World Wide Web. The URL was a very, very clever idea. It was perfectly what I needed. So, Paiwan dropped Tim Berners-Lee an email saying that he was thinking of writing a web browser for X Windows on Unix. Tim responded and said, sounds like a good idea. Uh, and that was in December 9th of 91. Four days later, Pai Wei told the WWW Talk mailing list that he had made a web browser. <laughs> now, the final version of this web browser of, of uh, Voila WWW was released in March of 1994. Uh, unfortunately, Pai Wan Wei was not able to compete with the likes of Mosaic. Mosaic at that point was the web browser to beat, and it ran on more platforms than he could possibly support. It was gaining popularity everywhere. And then, later on, uh, later in 1994, we saw the launch of Netscape, and Pai Wanwei could not compete with any of this. He had developed something that was, without question, light years more advanced. He created a web browser and an authoring environment for web pages that was arguably close to as advanced as modern web pages are today. 
and he did it back in 1990 to 1992. But he couldn't compete. He couldn't compete with what others were doing, and so he, he abandoned the project. What's interesting is as the years went on, as the years went on, people pointed to what Paiwan Wei did in a number of lawsuits. There was so many companies suing each other about violating this patent or that patent related to World Wide Web and hypertext transport and different specifications. But all of them could point back to voila www as prior work and prior art. Because so many of the concepts that we use nowadays... Tables, CSS, scriptability, and full object-oriented development of inside your web pages, all of it was first created by that one man, Pai Wan Wei, back in the early 1990s. Uh, so hats off to you, Pai Wan. You were a true trailblazer. You created something that was, not even arguably, but without a doubt, 10, 20, in some cases, even 30 years ahead of its time. And you did it uh, You did it in style. What you created was amazing, and you deserve to be remembered. When we come back, uh, we're going to talk about uh, a, a big topic that I... I we're going to talk about Meta. We're going to talk about Facebook. We're going to talk about the continuing evolution of the Internet in general. Uh, so stick around. It's time to get your suit on. Normally, the second hour of this show, we take questions. And one of those questions came in today, and it really got me thinking. It got my 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 brain noodles working and my gears are spinning. The hamsters you know, obviously were on speed and just started spinning in their wheels extra fast. So I'm bringing one of those questions in here, and I want to talk about them in a little bit longer way today. This question came in from Greg, and he says, quote, any thoughts on Meta exiting the Metaverse market, such as it is? Will there be anything left of Facebook by the end of this decade, or will we all be passing around Zuckerberg versions of the MySpace Tom photo? All right, uh... MySpace, Tom was the founder of MySpace, for those who don't know. And so a lot of times nowadays you'll see pictures of Tom from MySpace because MySpace was really one of the first big successes in the social media market. And obviously it died. So the question really is a couple fold is one, where does Meta, the founding company behind Facebook, go from here? What is in their near future? And two, are we going to see Facebook around in anything that even resembles its current state a few years from now? And I think the answers to those questions are profoundly obvious if we simply look at the most re the recent history and the long-term history of the computer industry. So let's take, take a step back in time for a moment. And look, let's look at online systems over the years. 
Because realistically, there has never been a point in time in the history of a computing where online systems have built themselves up and remained a dominant player for more than X number of years. At some point, they go kaput. Every single time. And we're talking entire networks, entire services, entire paradigms, all of them, kaput. AOL, Prodigy, CompuServe, the BBSs, MySpace, Dig, so many things that seem like they become industries into themselves. So many online services, so many social websites that seem like they simply are so big, they must exist forever. And they never, ever do. So when we look at any online service right now, whether it be Twitter, Facebook, Google, Gmail, any of it, it, it stands to reason that it, they all only have so many years of life left in them in anything that even closely resembles their current state. And, and to show a good example of this, I'd like to point to Apple. Now, Apple has their own set of online services, right? They have what they kind of call their iCloud and whatnot now. So iCloud exists, you know, offers people some backup solutions and, and whatnot. And that is really an evolution of multiple online services that have existed for quite some time. Going all the way back to, let's see, what was it? It's around 2000-ish. We had the iTools online service. Remember iTools? iTools was great. You get a you get a dot .Mac email address. I used to have a dot .Mac. In fact, there was a point. I was so quick to jump on the bandwagon. I had, I kid you not, my first name at Mac.com. Brian at Mac.com. I, I actually had that. I, I was a developer. I was part of the WWD or not the, the Apple developer program. Uh, and I went to all the WWDC. So I, the second I heard about iTools rolling out, I grabbed that email address. And of course, I stopped using it and eventually got deleted. And I'm sure someone else got that name. But that was, <laughs> was like 20 years ago. Uh, but that existed back then. And then it became the .Mac service, which was, again, different, but same, same. And things continued to roll. And so nowadays, Apple has their iCloud system. Is it related to their earlier online efforts? Sort of. I mean, they're built with entirely different systems. Their old systems were all web objects and next steppy and whatnot. And uh, they, they built them all that way. And a lot of those old services don't even really exist anymore. I, I, and new services do. You could say it's an evolution, but you could also say it's just two entirely or three entirely different services that Apple has provided over the years when they've shut down their previous services. And that's just one company that isn't even in the online service business. Like traditionally, they were a hardware and operating system company. But nowadays, you know, the, what, what it's their online service? Well, it's kind of like iTunes plus iCloud. I don't know, something like sort of like that. Microsoft has continued to evolve their online services. Most old online services are dead and gone. AOL and Instant Messenger even closed down. 
there is almost zero probability that Facebook, Twitter, Google.com as a search engine like, like we know it right now, Gmail and the rest will still exist in any recognizable fashion 10 years from now. Almost zero chance. Zero chance. So when I look at Meta, because <laughs> Facebook changed its name to Meta when it was deciding it was going to bet the whole farm on this putting on goggles and entering the Metaverse concept, which is just clearly not working out for them. And we could argue whether or not they're simply too early to creating such a thing. They're, they're just too ahead of the game or whether or not it was just a bad idea to start with. But that's an argument for a different day. Suffice to say, it's just not working out. No matter how many ads they push out, no matter how hard they push the idea on everyone else, people just aren't jumping at it. So what do they do? Well, at some point, they're going to have to fish or cut bait. They are simply going to have to say, what's making us money, what's not, and let's start chopping things. And they're looking, even right now, news is breaking, that they are looking internally at building a Twitter competitor. Yeah. Yeah, at a time when, when things become uncertain, and when their their own financials are rocky as all get out, they're looking to diversify their portfolio, use their existing social media brand to roll out a decentralized Twitter competitor. Which really, realistically, is also going to be a Facebook competitor. But that's not as stupid as it sounds on the surface. Because the reality is, Facebook as a product simply cannot exist into the future that much longer. Not as a successful product. And if you have any doubt of that, simply look to MySpace, to Dig, and to AOL. It simply is, it has a lifespan. So... What Facebook and what Meta are doing by looking to create a brand new social network to compete with Twitter is kind of smart. It's hedging their bets that hopefully if when Facebook crashes, when the metaverse comes crumbling down, that they will have another company spinning up and ready to go that they can funnel their users into. Something brand new, something without the legacy, something without the bad press that's been been built up over years, something fresh and hopefully profitable. So that is inevitable. And I think I think we'll probably be seeing more of that. In fact, I would be very, very surprised if by the end of next year, of the end of 2024, we don't see completely new Social media networks from Meta, Google, and Twitter. Now, Google's been in the social media business in the past with Google+, and they closed that down. But I see no reason why they won't get into that again. Google creates, Google has how many chat 
software packages now, Allo and Hangouts and chat and blah, 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 and voice, everything else. They have so many chat applications and chat networks and services. It almost boggles the mind. And they close things down almost faster than they can open them up. But Google's going to get into that. I guarantee it. And Twitter isn't going to be just Twitter. If you were Twitter and you had Twitter's market share and Twitter's market name and market branding dominance, you would come up with a viable backup to Twitter. Something different, something unique, but still distinctly social media. The same is true with Facebook. You come up with something that's different than Facebook but still social media. So it stands to reason that they come up with a Twitter competitor. Something where they can where they can stem the tide of people going to services like Mastodon and the like. That's what you do. That's what you do. And at the same time, we're going to see a number of smaller companies continue to emerge and, and dominate in areas where Twitter, Google, and Facebook have typically ignored. That The change is inevitable. Change is absolutely going to happen. Will Meta still exist into the future? Yes. They're a big company. They will find a way to still exist. Will they continue to be a big company? That remains to be seen. Will they continue to make the Metaverse and Facebook? Honestly, I think no. Not in any way that is recognizable to us today. All right, as we come to the end of our first hour of Lunduke's Big Tech Show, thank you everyone for sticking around. Next up, next hour, I'm going to be taking a whole boatload of your questions. We got a massive tidal wave of them here today, so stick around. Come on, right up. The show. And the story of it was I would rise above it But now I slept through your nose when I couldn't lose And you're confused because I'm tricky